How did the moon landing change life on Earth? The race to the moon, Apollo, that achievement, the sort of America at its best, really hard work. We were told something was impossible, and then we simply dug in and did it. Charles Fishman reminds us what going to the moon did for a nation in turmoil 50 years ago. The latest unmanned space mission is exploring the edge of our solar system. Alan Stern is the director of the New Horizons mission to Pluto. Its geology and its atmosphere and its system of moons is as complex as the Earth or Mars. So sometimes great things come in small packages. And hear how astronaut Chris Hadfield photographs the Earth from space. And you wait for just the right angle between Africa and the spaceship and the sun, and suddenly the sun glints off the water as if some great uh, lighting engineer just gave you the, the best picture possible. Explore the universe in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The first time my parents dragged me to Europe, I was a gawky 14-year-old who couldn't see the value of taking precious summer vacation time to meet relatives in the old country. But as we gathered at my cousin's house in Norway to watch the Apollo 11 moon landing, my perspective started to open up. When they translated Neil Armstrong's words into Norwegian, I saw that the moon landing wasn't just something staged to boost American pride. It was an event for the entire world to celebrate as a human being took his first steps on the moon. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we're celebrating that first moon landing with journalist Charles Fishman. He tells us about the human energy behind the Apollo moon missions. We'll also hear how Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield takes amazing photographs of the Earth from the International Space Station. First, let's hear what NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has learned about Pluto since taking close-ups as it flew by in 2015. Planetary scientist Alan Stern is the head of the New Horizons space mission, and he writes about it in his book, Chasing New Horizons. Alan, welcome. This is great to be here, Rick. Plutophiles must be in their glory. I mean, this must be a huge boost to what we know about Pluto and what that means. There, there's a mystique about Pluto, the most distant planet in our solar system, or, or maybe it's not a planet. First of all, can you tell us what is the status? Is Pluto a planet, or is it just called a dwarf planet, and what's the difference? Well, you know, the sun's a dwarf star. It doesn't make it not a star. Pluto's called a dwarf planet because it's smaller than the earliest planets that we discovered. Planets like the Earth are thousands of miles across. Pluto is the width of the United States, the size hmm. of a continent. If you put the Earth next to Jupiter, Earth looks like a peeps, yeah. pipsqueak. And stars are the same way. There are very small ones, and there are very large ones, and the sun is one of the smallest. Nonetheless, it's still a star because it burns nuclear fusion and makes energy and makes light. We have discovered since the 1990s that the most populous class of planet in our solar system, and probably in the galaxy, are these dwarf planets, these planets the size of continents like Pluto. When we explored it with New Horizons, we actually discovered that its geology and its atmosphere and its system of moons is as complex as the Earth or Mars. Hmm. So sometimes great things come in small packages, <laughs> and that's the case with Pluto. And bottom line, I mean, it's a rock that's orbiting around the sun. Does that mean it's, it's a planet? Well, not really, because the, first of all, it's not a rock. There are lots of shards called asteroids and comets. Okay. We flew by one at the beginning of 2019, a Kuiper Belt object called Ultima Thule. Relatively small things in space, things that are only a mile or tens of miles across, right. can have almost any shape. A lot of them look like potatoes, more or less. But you'll notice all the planets you've ever seen in a textbook, they're always big and round. 
they're actually round because they're big enough that gravity shapes them into that sphere. The gravity is more important than the material strength. So whereas a ah. building or a mountain or an asteroid has a shape that can be arbitrary, it's controlled by chemical bonds in the material, if you keep pouring on more mass as objects, they eventually wrap themselves into a sphere owing to self-gravity. And when you look at Pluto, that's exactly what you see. Yeah, so if something's very, very big, it's going to be very, very round because it has its own gravity. Exactly, and the transition between the arbitrary shape and the spherical shape is the dividing line between not a planet and a planet. <sighs> and Pluto looks pretty round to me. All right, now, when was Pluto actually discovered? I mean, it's a couple billion miles away. I would imagine uh, it took a pretty good telescope to find that place. Well, it was actually found at a distance of almost 4 billion miles from the Earth with a relatively small telescope and a very dedicated young man, 24 years old, named Clyde Tombaugh, hmm. working at Lowell Observatory in northern Arizona. He took the first images of Pluto in January of 1930, 89 years ago. And it took about a month before he, he made the discovery, you know, caught up with his own data and found it. And then the discovery was announced in March of 1930. And I understand some of his ashes are actually in the spacecraft sort of commanded from Earth, and they have flown right by the planet he discovered 90 years Absolutely ago. Absolutely right. And he is the first human being to ever be launched on a, a spacecraft leaving the solar system for the stars. Wow. Before he died... Clyde Tomba. So he's a little bit of his DNA is out there, farther than any other human being from Earth where he was born. Absolutely. Yeah. He wanted this to happen. In the 90s, when we were first talking about flying a mission to Pluto, he was in his 90s and he said, you know, I'm not going to live to see this, but if it ever happens and there's a way to do it, I'd sure like to see my ashes on that bird flying out there. You know, this is interesting to me because I know this mission has been going, it's, you know, New Horizons has been in the air for almost like 10 years and it was uh, conceived before that. These kind of projects outlive people's careers and oftentimes their lives, and people are dedicated to it even knowing they may not see the end of that project. It is quite a remarkable passion and commitment to this, isn't it? It is, and the people on the New Horizons team are amazing, and it is a big team, and spaceflight's a team sport. Uh, it takes many different kinds of talents on a spacecraft team to do everything. And in the case of New Horizons, it's not completely unique, but it is kind of at the extreme of being a very long mission. From inception, not concept, you know, mm -hmm. but just from when we started New Horizons itself, which was in the year 2000, and here we are 19 years later, unless something we don't expect happens, we expect to be flying this bird for another 15, maybe 20 years. That is amazing. Our guest, Alan Stern, is head of what's being called the most exciting space mission in a generation. New Horizons is revealing stunning images of Pluto and the fringes of our solar system. Alan's co-authored Chasing New Horizons with David Grinspoon and their books now out in paperback. Alan tells us what New Horizons is doing in the Kuiper Belt, a billion miles beyond Pluto, in Travel with Rick Steves program number 563. That's in our online archives from May of 2019. Alan, when we think about the New Horizons, that's the name of the mission, but it's also the name of the space capsule, is that right? That's right. Can you just describe the capsule itself, the design, the construction, the technical challenges? How big is it? What does it look like? Sure. Well, first, I wouldn't call it a capsule. That term is usually used for the spacecraft encapsulates the human beings in it. Okay. New Horizons is a robot. It weighed about 1,000 pounds when we launched it, including the fuel that was on board. 
It's about the size of a baby grand piano. Inside of it, we have all of the systems needed for a, a flight across the solar system. So there's propulsion, computers for control, and a thermal control system, and a communication system to send data back and to get instructions from the Earth. And there's a power system, which is actually a nuclear power system. And then all the sensors, the seven scientific sensors, the cameras and spectrometers that actually deliver the goods that take the data on the objects we fly by. And the spacecraft carries two of all of its systems, so there's a backup if something breaks. And it's completely amazing the technology that goes into these things. You think about this, you're going off on a multi-billion mile journey that's going to last decades. It's a one-way trip. You can't fix it after it leaves. You can update software and you can switch to backup systems, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to be very reliable. And all of that in a small package the size of a, a baby grand piano, and it's got to work. Does it have anything like a cow catcher or, or heat shields? I mean, you, you'd think it's hurtling through all those billions of miles, or is it just like completely naked and exposed because you're just out there in nothingness? Well, the spacecraft is actually wrapped in something called MLI, multi-layer insulation thermal blankets that keep it from losing heat to space too rapidly. It's kind of looks like a gold foil on the outside of the spacecraft, but it's actually almost two dozen layers of foils of various types that are exquisitely engineered to do that thermal control. But laced in the multi-layer insulation is also a layer of Kevlar. That's what bulletproof vests are made of. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that is to protect the spacecraft from micrometeorite strikes at these high speeds of 30,000 miles an hour. Because you could, in some freak coincidence, just get hit by a rock somewhere, couldn't you? Well, yes, that's right. Now, if we get hit by a rock, it's game over because the Kevlar can't protect us from that. But even being hit by grains of sand at 32,000 miles an hour will puncture the walls of the spacecraft and then get potentially cut a wire or yeah. a fuel line, or yeah. it's just basically nothing good you want to hit. So since the small things, the dust grains, are the things that do hit New Horizons, not rocks, space is too empty for that. Right. But the dust grains do hit, on a routine basis, we protect against those with that Kevlar. And are there any innovations in the 10 years since this was built that, in the way of hardware and so on that you wish you would have been able to put in it? You know, there are lots of things that we can do better in 2019 than we could do back when we designed New Horizons in 2002 and three. Mm-hmm. That's just the nature of it. But when we look back, you know, the spacecraft's working very well. All the subsystems are working well. It delivers spectacular data. If I had more money back then, uh, my first priority would have been to build two mm-hmm. uh, and get two flybys of Pluto and two chances at Kuiper Belt exploration. Let's say you've got a chance to talk to a whole bunch of people who are skeptical about uh, tax dollars going into NASA and so on, and even your mission, which cost less than a billion dollars. Some people might figure, eh, is it really worth it? Make the case, because uh, I know we learned about Tang and we learned about Velcro by going to the moon, and, and we're all happy about that. What is it about NASA that you think is worth the money, and maybe it's intangible? I would say there are two answers to your question. The first is that, you know, this is the beginning of of human beings being able to break out off of our home planet and become a space-fearing civilization. This era we're living in, this is where Star Trek begins. And NASA is the premier space agency on the planet. But the other reason to do this is, it's very interesting. You talk to people, and this has been scientifically surveyed, talk to people who are in tech careers. Tech careers fuel our economy. If it wasn't for tech, then we'd be back in the Stone Age. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you talk to electrical engineers and mechanical engineers and you know other kinds of engineers and scientists, you'll find a common thread that very many of them, as a kid, got hooked on science and engineering by watching space missions. Yeah. And most of them didn't grow up to do what I do and do what the New Horizons team does, work on space missions. They ended up at Google or they ended up at Microsoft or they end up at Apple or they end up at Tesla and a thousand other places that are shaping the 21st century. And they all, not all, but so many, even the CEOs, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos will tell you they were swept off their feet for technology by watching space missions. And that is the greatest gift, I think, in our own time of what NASA does. Those dollars, they fuel the interest to fuel the pipelines at colleges of engineering students, mathematics students, science students that come out the other end and invent everything that we need to have the society that we do. I am sold. You know, you push the boundaries of space and at the same time you're pushing the boundaries of life right here on Earth. Alan Stern, congratulations on your book Chasing New Horizons and uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure. Alan's website is alanstern.space. In just a bit, Hear how the views from the International Space Station are truly out of this world. Where were you when Apollo 11 landed on the moon? We're at 877-333-RICK at Travel with Rick Steves. When President John F. Kennedy asked Congress to send Americans to the moon, the mission seemed impossible. The United States was far from ready. We didn't know what we needed, how to get there, or what could happen on the moon. In 1961, the U.S. had only been in space for five minutes, and it had to invent the technology to get started. But in just eight years, the world watched as American astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took man's first steps on the moon. Charles Fishman documents how thousands of men and women behind the scenes orchestrated the mission to the moon. And he learned a few things about the moon landing that you may not have heard before. His new book explores the stories of the Apollo mission and how it changed our world. It's called One Giant Leap. Charles, happy moonwalk anniversary. Thanks so much for having me. It's actually one of the great and exciting moments in the history of space travel right now. That's true. It's 50 years ago that man first walked on the moon. How are you marking the anniversary? I'm marking the anniversary by spending at least six weeks retelling the story because it is an amazing story. And, you know, I wanted to tell the story not from the perspective of the astronauts. The astronauts are, in fact, truly heroic and worked incredibly hard, amazing dedication. The work I've done over the last four years to be able to write the book has only left me with more respect, has only left me more impressed with the astronauts. But there were 410,000 people back on Earth, Mm -hmm. working to make just 11 Apollo missions possible. And their stories aren't nearly as well known as the stories of the astronauts. And so I wanted to bring that effort, the effort of the frontline folks back on Earth, to life for people. You wrote, I think, that there was like one million hours of work by NASA and, and related workers for each hour of space flight. That's a lot of investment. It's an almost mind-boggling number. I, I I did the calculations three or four times to make sure I, mm-hmm. I wasn't missing a decimal point. For every hour that the Apollo astronauts were in flight to the moon or walking around or driving around in their moon dune buggy, for every hour of Apollo space flight, 
a million hours of work was required by scientists, engineers, and factory workers back on Earth. The effort expended is really unlike anything ever in human history. It really was not just a great adventure, but it required all of us to support it back here on Earth. Well, let's talk about technically what was going on, because when Kennedy declared that we'd do this by the end of the decade, that was 1961. You stress in this book and make it so clear that we just were not even at the starting point at that time. Where were we at technically, and what were some of the mysteries? You know, just to start, in 1961, May 1961, when Kennedy said, let's go to the moon, half of Americans, more than half of Americans, had never been on an airplane. So Kennedy was asking us to imagine and support a mission to the moon, and most Americans had never been airborne. The technology to go to the moon not only didn't exist, there was no rocket that was powerful enough to send us to the moon, no computer. Computers then were the size of refrigerators. You could not send a refrigerator to the moon. No computer small enough to fly us to the moon, no spacesuits, no space food. And as you say, the entire mission was a series of problems and challenges and mysteries. We didn't know if human beings would be able to think in zero gravity. Hmm. We didn't know what the surface of the moon was like. A distinguished Cornell astrophysicist said, you better design the lunar module so that it'll be safe if there's six feet of dust on the moon. Because that scientist thought, hey, the moon's been out there for four billion years being pummeled by, mm -hmm. by asteroids and, and meteorites. All you're going to find is a layer of dust, and the lunar module is going to sink right up to its landing struts once it lands. So, Charles, this is such a radical thing that Kennedy proposed in 1961. What motivated Kennedy, and then what motivated Congress to pay for it? Because it was a huge investment. In 1961, the reality was that the Russians were absolutely crushing us in space. The Russians did every single important space milestone first for many years. The first spacecraft of any kind, they started the space age with Sputnik. The first creatures into space, the dog Laika, the Soviets launched the first probe that went to the moon, the first probe that photographed the moon. They, of course, famously launched the first astronaut into space, the first human being, Yuri Gagarin. And so Kennedy literally said to NASA, in space, second place is the same as losing. We're losing. Mm -hmm. How do we catch up? In the global rivalry that was the Cold War, the Soviets were making themselves look like the engineering and scientific and space travel power in mm -hmm. the world. And this wasn't like some kind of athletic rivalry. The Cold War was serious business. And Kennedy felt like the ground was shifting. Public opinion worldwide was shifting away from the United States because of Russian space achievements. And he said to NASA, we've got to catch up. How do we do that? And NASA said, the only way to be sure of doing it is to go to the moon. And spend a lot of money. Now, Kennedy almost sent this as a memo to Congress that you wrote about in your book. I guess they said, let's make it a speech. And I would imagine without that inspiring speech, it might not have uh, actually happened. That's exactly right. The most important speech in the history of space travel was Kennedy's speech on May 25th, 1961, asking Congress and asking Americans to send us to the moon by the end of the decade, within eight or nine years. But until literally the day before he gave that speech, Kennedy was planning to simply send the text of the address to Congress and let it be read by a clerk to anybody mm. who happened to stumble by and listen. Wow. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Charles Fishman. His book is One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. And Charles, one thing that you stress in the book that I really appreciate is how the 60s, it was a tumultuous decade. And there was all sorts of transformation and tragedy and division in the United States, Vietnam and racial tensions and riots, Cold War and and Kennedy's assassination. Yet we were able to spend in a parallel way this united effort and this amazing accomplishment for our country. Talk about the value of that just from the sweep of American history. If you take a step back, the 60s were, as you described them, incredibly divisive. They were a period of great progress, but also a period of great tumult and great division. And you know, sometimes the race to the moon, Apollo is sort of portrayed as apart from that. Here are these people with white shirts and ties at their computer consoles and mission control. But they weren't apart from it. The war on poverty protesters were at the launch of Apollo 11. They marched on the Kennedy Space Center in part to make the point that there were problems on Earth that needed attention. And the NASA administrator, the day before Apollo 11 launched for the moon, met with those protesters. He listened to what they had to say. He explained how he thought going to the moon was going to help solve problems on Earth, not the least because... It was a complicated undertaking, and if you could learn how to solve those problems, you could apply that to problems on Earth. And he then invited the protesters to sit in the VIP stands Mm. during the launch, and having had that conversation with him, they accepted. So it was a part of the 60s, and I think then and now people look back with a little wistfulness. They say, the race to the moon, Apollo, that achievement... The sort of America at its best, mm-hmm. really hard work. We were told something was impossible, and then we simply dug in and did it. There were no superheroes. And Charles, it created this American confidence. Back then, I remember we'd say, if you can send a man to the moon, you can do this. If you can send the man to the moon, you can certainly do that. It was a very positive can-do thing that I'm sure had ripples of uh, productivity and, and greatness uh, across our whatever happened in the United States after that. It restored a sense of the American spirit in the sense of exactly what you say. If we can send a man to the moon, and by the way we did, that's the hardest thing we can imagine doing, then we should be able to tackle these other things. It really did give Americans a lift at a kind of complicated moment. But the other thing it did, which NASA and and Apollo don't get any credit for, it really laid the foundation for the digital age in which we live. You cannot picnic on the moon. And I think people thought we might be ushering in the era of the Jetsons or Star Trek. Mm -hmm. But you do hold all of human knowledge in your hand when you have your iPhone. And that iPhone can trace its heritage back to the incredible advances in technology, especially computing and digital technology that going to the moon required. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Charles Fishman, and his book is One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and also being sure that we're mindful of the importance of this, this investment, and and what it means to what America can be at its best. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Ed's calling in from Santa Clarita in California. Ed, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick, how are you? I listened to all the comments. I I agree. It's just one of those American can-do stories, you know, the Apollo missions to the moon and the exploration of the moon. Of course, I watched the first few moonshots on television with my family, but I was lucky enough at age six or seven to attend the launch of Apollo 16, 
commanded by John Young down in uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Uh, later in the 1990s, I was able to meet uh, the commander of Apollo 14, Alan Shepard, at a book signing in my hometown of Charlotte. So I was able to uh, meet an actual uh, astronaut who had walked on the moon, and it was very exciting for me. And, and the one thing I, I realized, there's only four of them still living that actually walked on the moon. Just it seems to me that uh, we have so much knowledge and so much to learn from these space explorers that uh, it's really a shame that uh, so many of them are getting up in age and there's only four of them left. Charles, part of your book is to celebrate these uh, heroes in our uh, recent history. And also to document it, right? There are only four people who walked on the moon left alive, but there is a great chronicle of what the perspective of the astronauts has been like, what that experience has been like. (laughs) The people who went to the moon have themselves together written 20 books So there's great documentation of what that experience is like online. You can listen in real time to all of every mission. There's annotated transcripts. My effort was to go back and look at the -the behind-the-scenes people. And to be honest, their stories are a little less well-chronicled, but I think just as bold, that work required absolute perfection. If the computer didn't work exactly right, if the spacesuits didn't work exactly right, the lives of the astronauts were at risk. And also, the standing of the United States in the world was at risk. You didn't want to just go. You wanted to go and succeed and have everything work out well. You know, as we've learned in in the tragic setbacks in our space program over the years, too, nothing can go wrong behind the scenes or the whole mission can be a disaster. That is certainly the lesson of the Apollo 1 fire early on in the program when three astronauts died. It was the lesson of Apollo 13, which, of course, was a near disaster that turned into a triumph. But one small thing went wrong in each of those. And the same is true in the subsequent disasters in in Challenger and, and Columbia. And so... A single thing can put everyone at risk, a single error, mm. a single flaw. Ed, thanks for your comment. That's, that's really important that we remember that. Okay, thank you very much. Very nice talking to you all. And Karen's on the line from Verbania in Italy. Karen, thanks for your call. Hi. I remember when this happened, I was maybe 10, 11 years old, and every summer our family took the three-week vacation in the family station wagon around the United States, and we camped. In my years of doing that as a child, we stayed in a motel one night, and that was the night that Apollo 11 landed on the moon. My dad found a hotel that had a black and white TV, and myself, my four brothers, and my parents climbed into a little tiny motel room, and I couldn't tell you what time it landed on the moon, but it seemed like it was in the middle of the night, and we sat up, and just that, that memory is so etched in my brain that I will never forget that. And Charles, you write in your book how our government was mindful of that and it needed to be big news. It was a part of our campaign to show off the greatness of America. And didn't you mention how NASA actually sped up the landing by a few hours so it would be on TV when most Americans could watch it? What happened in the end was the astronauts were scheduled for a nap after they landed, Armstrong and Aldrin. And uh, thank goodness, they said a five-hour nap. (laughs) They said they wanted to skip the nap. They hadn't come to the moon to go to sleep. If we were excited, you can imagine being the guys who got to do it. And so they, they started to suit up and go outside. As it happened, the moon landing started on the East Coast in the 10 to 11 o'clock hour, so across the United States. It was at a good time, and it lasted about two hours. It would have happened in the mm. middle of the night if they <laughs> if they had taken their nap. And they probably had all the photography plans down, so they'd be sure to capture that on film, because, you know, if nobody sees it, 
it almost doesn't happen in, in the media. Well, it is interesting to listen to the landing because the technology was so basic at that time. All we have of that first moon landing as it was happening is narration, is the radio yeah. traffic, because there were no cameras on the outside of the lunar module as it came down. True. But there was a remote control camera that uh, Neil Armstrong was able to unleash and turn on, and it captured him coming down the ladder. And then, yes, the photography plan was very well planned for that first lunar I, landing. There were tight and shots of the boots on the, on the steps going down, if I remember. That camera was mounted just on the outside of the lunar module shooting back at the ladder. So, yes, there was the ability to get them. Karen, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Charles Fishman. He's a best-selling author who wrote The Walmart Effect and The Big Thirst about water in an age of increasing scarcity. His latest book explores the stories of the people who put a man on the moon. It's called One Giant Leap. Charles, this is a travel show, and we've got a lot of travelers listening. If people are inspired in, in the 50th anniversary of the moon landing to work that into our travels around the United States, where can you go as a sightseer and learn about the moon landing? There are three classic sites, Houston, Mission Control. There's a spectacular display of how we did this there at Cape Kennedy, where all of the moon missions, of course, were launched from. Another slightly different variation on, on how we did it. Here in Washington, D.C., there are two really amazing museums. The Air and Space Museum has two wings, the one right on the mall, right in downtown Washington, and an even bigger Air and Space Museum out at Dulles International Airport. They're both, of course, free because they're Smithsonian museums. And, you know, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is the most visited museum in the world, more visitors mm. even than the Louvre. Charles, when we think about this 50th anniversary and we think about the tumultuous decade of the 1960s and then we think about the challenges we're facing as a society today politically and environmentally do you feel like we can draw some lessons from the moon landing that should inspire us today you know it was really amazing to spend four years sort of researching and reporting and studying about this period and talking to the people who did it and i came away with a very real sense that this was an extraordinary undertaking, and when you talk to the people who did it, they say, it was extraordinary, but I'm an ordinary person. I was lifted up out of my typical work life and inspired by the mission, and it really was impossible when Kennedy said, let's do it, and then we did it. And to me, that really is emblematic of the American spirit. We like to be told something's impossible and then do it, mm. and I think the big challenges facing us, you know, Climate change needs to be tackled. Unlike going to the moon, which we didn't know how to do, we actually know what we need to do mm -hmm. to fix climate change, mm -hmm. and we can do it. Americans like to rise to the occasion. And so for me, it really was a kind of inspirational journey in the sense that it is nice to be reminded that as a group, as a nation, our character is to rise to the occasion and do the right thing. And that, that is so clear when you talk to the people who did it. Charles Fishman, thank you so much for celebrating the Apollo moon landing in your book, One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon. And more than that, to let us learn from that chapter in our history to know that we can be the country we want to be today. Thanks so much, Rick. I appreciate you having me. We know that the moon isn't made of cheese. But did you know that it has a distinct odor? 
Charles Fishman tells us what the Apollo astronauts said the moon dust smelled like and other surprises in an extra to this week's show. You can hear it from our website at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, one of Canada's favorite astronauts tells us what it's like to photograph Earth from the International Space Station. And I remember my first summer in Europe on my own, the summer of 73. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A little while ago, I told you how viewing the first moonwalk with my cousins in Norway helped to change my narrow teenager view of the world. It was only a few years later when I teamed up with a high school buddy to spend the summer vagabonding across Europe on our own. We'll remember the youthful thrills of the summer of 73 in just a bit. Exploring our world, we come home with a better perspective. We understand our place in the grand scheme of things. Imagine exploring our world from 250 miles up. Imagine going around this planet 2,000 times, 92 minutes per orbit, and having a camera in your hand and capturing everything through a big, curved window. Moonrises, sunsets, cloud patterns, entire continents stretching out before you. That's what Commander Chris Hadfield's done for several months in the International Space Station, and he's written a book to share what he brought home from his photographic safari. We're going to talk now with Chris Hadfield about his book, You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Commander Hadfield, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks. What an amazing experience to be a photo buff, being up in the International Space Station and going around the world every 92 minutes. How was that from a camera point of view? You know, sometimes you try and just say to yourself, I'm not going to take a picture. I'm just going to look. But it goes so fast. You come up on the coast, say, uh, the big bulge of Africa where Morocco is, and, and you're looking at it, and suddenly you realize, wow, all of the clouds are pushed away from shore like there's a force field around Morocco or something. And your right hand immediately reaches over and grabs the camera and pulls it up, and you start clicking, and you wait for just the right angle between Africa and the spaceship and the sun, and suddenly the sun glints off the water as if some great lighting engineer just gave you the best picture possible, and you take those pictures, and the, and then you're over the Sahara. It's, oh, it's, that is the trippiest explanation I've ever heard. I never thought I could <laughs> say, imagine you're, you're coming around Morocco, and the clouds are gathered around like a little, little circle, and there's a force field, and suddenly you're over the Saharan <laughs> desert. And you got that yeah. day in and day out for months at a time, and you had your camera, and you collected it all in this book, You Are Here. Now, you wrote in the book how you started shooting everything in sight, and then you decided, no, nah, I'm going to get more focused, and, and you became almost like a stalker or somebody who was a hunter. <laughs> What were you stalking? What was the big shot when you were coming around the world another time? Well, I learned what to look for. At first, you just photograph everything. But Mm -hmm. but after a while, you develop sort of a relationship or an intimacy with what you're looking at. And you learn to look back where the sun's going to glint or to look ahead to the Terminator, Mm -hmm. the edge between the first light of the sun is just starting to 
cut through the atmosphere and then touch the surface of the world. Or if you look up to the horizon where the blue of the dawn is cutting in on a long diagonal streak under the green of the aurora of the northern lights, and, and you end up with the glowing haze and blue of the world, and you have the green shimmer on the horizon, and then the super sharp line of blue cutting underneath and putting an end to it. And that's all going on all the time. And you're just looking around to find something that is fleeting, Hmm. uh, a glint of something or a shape that appears and disappears because of the angle that uh, you're looking at it from. And it's just, it's magnificent. And and it it makes me laugh and smile Ah. every time what the world shows me. Paging through your beautiful book, uh, You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, I, I was struck just by the flat-out beauty of the images. But I al- was also struck by the thought that you had kind of an agenda. You, your photographs were expressing a point of view. Were you evangelical about what you were learning and appreciating? What, what do you want people to get as a takeaway from this book? It was hard to choose which, out of so many pictures that I took, uh, what would you put in a book and Why? I had to give myself some guidelines. One was I wanted to show the whole world, so I didn't want to have just 200 pictures of the Bahamas and the Outback, which are both beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, But also I thought if I were lucky enough, whoever is holding this book in their hands, if they were beside me in this huge bulging window of the space station, which we call the cupola, if the two of us were floating weightless, heads down in the cupola, looking at the world, What would I want to show them in Mm -hmm. the 92 minutes it's going to take? If you and I were there and I grabbed you by the arm and said, okay, let's take an hour and a half. I want to show you the world. Uh. And and then what would I shake your arm and go, oh, wait, wait till you see this. Look, look right here. (laughs) Look what's coming. Look, and then tell you what I know about that. But I didn't want to tell people what to think. I wanted to make sure that they noticed what was there and then could draw their own conclusions. I didn't want them to miss that was there. So I didn't just, it's not just a coffee table book of pretty pictures. It's the pictures, but what I would have told you if the two of us were there real time. There is that cohesiveness of the book that I appreciate. It was thoughtfully laid out. You mentioned that you spent about five months in 2013 up in space. And the quote is, you never tired of looking out the window and you said, no astronaut ever has or will. That's a pretty yeah. strong statement. I mean, it's it's Niagara Falls, and it's a glorious sunset, and it is a shooting star. It's mm-hmm. it's just a, and you, none of your other senses tell you that you're there. You don't you don't smell or taste or touch or hear the earth. It's all visual. And when when you're in the in this big window where on the space station, the cupola, looking at the world, there's actually a hush in there. When there are two astronauts in there, Uh, and hardly ever it's two because people are busy, we normally sort of whisper to each other just because it's that sense of privilege and almost a reverence, a responsibility of being there. And and your eyes are seeing this on behalf of so many other eyes. So you have that feeling all the time as well. We find that in the great museums in Europe is you just feel like whispering sometimes when you're surrounded by Giotto frescoes or Botticelli paintings. And I can imagine the same would be for you as you're observing the earth from high above. Did you ever find yourself seeing the earth as recognizing it as kind of an organism in a way you might not if you were back down on the terra firma? Absolutely. And I think what really turned my mind one day was I was coming across Canada and I saw the town of Winnipeg, which which I know fairly well. And it's a standard looking prairie town, really a standard town anywhere. It's got the downtown and it's got a river flowing through it mm-hmm. and it's got the highway and it's got the railways and it's got the suburbs and the airport and the surrounding farms. Hmm. And I know Winnipeg and I've been there. And then 20 minutes later, I was over Africa. And I went over a town, and it had the downtown and the railway and the river and the surrounding and everything, and it was exactly the same. And yeah. and I don't even know that town, 
but it is sort of instantly very visually connected for me, the experience of being human. This is just us. This is how we live. We repeat the same patterns. And because I know what Winnipeg is like, it gave me a connectedness with the people of that city that I've, I don't even know the name of, just by the very similarity of how oh. we exist over the whole planet. And partway through the flight, I started just referring to everybody as us. I didn't even consciously do it, but I noticed using social media that I just started referring to wherever it was as, hey, look, this is us here. This oh. is what we are doing. You know, that's a powerful thing for peace. Yeah. That is and a not just thing. Not, But self-awareness as well. And, mm. and so I would love for you and I to have 100 orbits of the world together. It changes mm. your perspective of where we all fit in. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Commander Chris Hadfield, and Chris's book is You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. It's the very best of 45,000 photographs that Chris took when he orbited the world more than 2,500 times. Chris, I would like to talk about a few of the features of the Earth, and we don't have a lot of time left, and I just want to say these things and get your take on it. Because I was struck by this when I enjoyed your book. Uh, The deltas, magnificent deltas all over the planet. They're a really distinctive feature. Some of them, of course, are the obvious ones flowing into the sea, like the Nile at, at Alexandria. But some of them are inland, where a river comes over a mountain and spreads. And, and mm. so you have this weird incongruous delta in the middle of Africa or in mm-hmm. northern Mexico somewhere. But it's a pattern you see all over. How about puffy clouds over a desert? Yeah, that's funny. And, and they often have sort of a, a, they're generated by some sort of undulating air mass. And so mm-hmm. they have a regular pattern to them. And they look like brush strokes. Mm. They shouldn't be there. But because they are there, it's even more beautiful. Yeah, it was like a waffle iron or something, something that was very uh, (laughs) regimented. I mentioned you saw some angry weather also. Coming across Indonesia and Malaysia one night, Tom Marshburn and I, one of my crewmates, there was a storm that was thousands of miles long and lightning all continuous, like someone, some giant hand had this huge white highlighter and was just streaking up. and, And lightning is contagious. It infects the whole cloud and... Both of us, if our jaws could have dropped, they would have dropped. So you can see lightning below you. You can scan the world's surface and see where the lightning storms are. Uh, it's like an incandescent bulb. The whole cloud uh, erupts. And some of the lightning goes vertical out of the cloud in blue sprites and, and red sprites up yeah. into space. Yeah, lightning isn't, isn't just cloud to ground. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris Hadfield, Commander Chris Hadfield, from the International Space Station. And Chris had a little sideline going on when he was up there. He had a camera with him, and he shot 45,000 photographs. Chris has put together this incredible photo collection. It's called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, and it's a beautiful celebration of what we can see and learn from space. Chris, when you think of all the experience you had circling this planet 2,600 times... What did it do to your perspective? Let's just finish with a thought on how it lets you know, get closer to our true place in the scheme of things. We get so wrapped up in our own particular 75 or 80 years on the Earth, and we desperately want those 80 years to be the most important in the whole history of the whole planet. You know, the doomsday sign holders and that general natural self-importance, that fades away. You see the four and a half billion year nature of the world, the the huge overlapping natural things that have happened. You can see the continents where they fit together. You can see how Africa and Asia are tearing apart. You can see where Greece and Italy tore from each other. It's You get a more humble sense of, of who you are, but also the great grace and privilege of seeing this place and the unique beauty of it, the inherent Christmas ornament-like 
gorgeousness of it. Mm. And uh, I think it makes you a better, a better citizen and steward of the world. You wrote a beautiful line in your book. You said, it's a helpful corrective to the frantic self-importance we are prone to as a species. Yeah. I would love to be able to take uh, not just politicians, but every single yeah. person in the world, come to the window for 100 orbits and then come back to Earth and think about where you truly are. Commander Chris Hadfield, congratulations on a beautiful book. You are here around the world in 92 minutes, and thanks for sharing this with all of us down here on Terra Firma. Thank you, Rick. Glad to be back. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to the year 1973. Richard Nixon was facing Watergate. The world was facing an oil crisis, and two teenage boys from the suburbs of Seattle were heading off to Europe on their first trip, the first time overseas, away from their parents, the first taste of high culture. That was more than 40 years ago, and that was me and Gene Openshaw, our first trip to Europe on our own. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw now. He's my travel partner back in 73, and he's been working with me for the last 40 years. Well, it makes me feel a little bit old, but uh, we're still young at heart. <laughs> and Gene's the co-author of several of my guidebooks. Gene, how did a couple of kids like us, with no cultural background, grow up to be talking about art and history now on the radio? Well, let me take you back to our first trip. Um, I brought something here. Oh. Hoping to kind of spark some memories that of what one travel day's was budget like right back there. then. Yeah. <laughs> a few coins from the pre-Euro days. Here, look. Okay, we're talking 73. So back then, we had a Here's Deutschmark. A, yeah. We had a Frank, a, a Greek drachma. Here's a lira. And a Norwegian, a, a Danish crown with a hole in it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Europe back then was quite different than travel today. You just think about some of the most basic things that we take for granted, like phone calls. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to gather a bunch of coins like this. Pop them in. You'd get a whole, all the coins you could gather, pop them in, and you get to talk one minute to your girlfriend <laughs> or your mom and dad. Yeah. The world wasn't globalized. Very few people spoke English. And I really had the sense, I don't know about you, that we were kind of on our own out there, sort of and, the dark and, side of the moon. And it was the Cold War, and that was scary. I remember standing in Berlin next to that wall, and it was scary. Crossing borders, just remember, you know, angry dogs and strange people coming at 2 o'clock in the morning to take your passports. And you did not question them. No, no. Yeah, Europe was kind of uh, a battlefield, a battleground between these two nuclear superpowers. But way back then, I still think there was the seeds of globalization. It was like we were on the edge of a new world. You know, remember this? We're on the Rhine River. We're at that castle in, was it Bacharach? Where you're up on that hill, yeah, beautiful summer over. night, we're out there, we're a couple of teenagers and we're surrounded by a bunch of other teenagers and their hormones. And I did get a sense of globalization because we all had some things in common. We all had gotten your rail passes. We all had $3 a night for a bunk at the youth hostel there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're all fascinated by medieval castles. And fascinated by pop culture. That was about the only thing we had in common. That's true. You know, the Beatles. Uh, she loves you, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Ah, das ist, das ist gut. Right. You know, or talking about Hollywood movies. Coca-Cola, everybody wanted a Coke. That's where I thought we really connected with the Europe that was coming of age and would become the globalized world. We learned a lot about culture, even though I remember just going to the museums because my mom said it would be a crime not to, but stepping into those museums, we did gain an appreciation of high culture. Mona Lisa, that knocked my socks off. Stepping into St. Mark's Square in Venice. Oh, oh man. Stepping the into the greatest cathedral in Europe, St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, man, yeah, the, the Baroque, the gold leaf, the, the statues. You know, it we was, didn't become, wow. we didn't probe too deeply in it, but we did have a respect for 
what people did centuries ago. And when we came back, we weren't art scholars by any means, nor are we now. But we do at least have a knowledge and understanding of what's out there. But, you know, we learned a lot from the museums and the art. But what really taught me the most, I think, was just the fact that Europe was so different then. It was kind of jarring when we went there. It kind of opened our eyes. You know, we're in Amsterdam, and and you're seeing these hippies and freaks and smoking pot and the girls on Z Dyke Street and the sex trade. And, and for a couple of teenage boys, that was kind of a... You're kind of trying to figure it all out. We were like two little Reese's monkeys hu huddling together and <laughs> hugging each other, trying not to, not, not to get into too much trouble. See no evil, hear no evil. <laughs> but when we flew home, yeah. the world was our playground. Yeah. I remember looking back on my journal from that trip, there were so many just mistakes that turned into great experiences. <laughs> What's one of the mistakes that you remember? Uh, well... One event that stands out and probably just sums up the whole trip for me. Remember, we tried to save money by not getting a hotel or a hostel, but we tried to sleep free on an empty train car that was parked oh, yeah. in a train that yard. That was in Yugoslavia, wasn't it? Yes. And this train looked like it hadn't moved for decades. It was just <laughs> sitting there. I thought moss was growing on its wheels. So we, both you and I looked at each other like, we just struck it rich, you know. Hey, we could go into there, slip into there. Nobody's mm -hmm. looking, nobody cares. Pull out all the chairs. That was when the chairs that faced each other pulled out and made a big bed, so you had a double bed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, we were kings. We were laying there. It felt so good for about, like, three hours. And what, what made it feel even better, it was absolutely free. Yeah, it was absolutely free. And we were so smart. But then, in the middle of the night, wham! <laughs> the train jerks to a start. And we jerk wide awake and we're going, oh Both of us are looking out the window like, what the heck? And we didn't know where we're going. Yugoslavia was scary enough. Suddenly we're hurtling through the night on a train that we don't have a ticket for. And we didn't know where the heck we were going. And we dragged all of our sleeping bags with us, standing at the door, wondering, should we jump out at this suburban station or should we stay in the train and go to Bucharest or something? <laughs> so we decided to leap and we landed in this little dark, dingy suburban station outside of Belgrade. Yep. And we then a man came over with a... We leaped out of the moving train, didn't we? Yes, and landed just splat right on the we, concrete We, we could platform. have hit a pillar and bounced back onto the uh, the train, and there would be no more trips. <laughs> but then I remember this. We kind of were checked everything. My main concern was, did we get all of our stuff off the train with us? And then were we in one piece? And this man walks over with a lantern. Actually, it was like a lantern. <laughs> yeah. And he'd say, who are these two crackpots? And then he, he took us in like a, a loving scoutmaster. He gave us a little place to sleep, and it we was, were on our way. It, it seemed like the perfect metaphor of a European with a lantern pointing <laughs> us the way to our future. Two kids opening up to the rest of the world. It was a bit of a rude awakening, but it was probably a healthy one for a, for a couple of young kids from the suburbs. I'm sure thankful for that trip. That was the best trip ever, Gene. And what's great in my mind is that those kind of wide-eyed wonderland adventures that we had when we were 18 years old so many decades ago, kids are having them today, too. It's still possible, and that's the magic of travel. Go for it, guys. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly Tim Tatton, with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Kaz Mara Hall. 
We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to OPP Portland, NPR Washington, and KGNU in Boulder, Colorado for their help this week. When you're traveling, you can find out when stations in other cities air travel with Rick Steves. Look for the link that says Find a Local Station at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.